0: Praise team for leading us in our singing this morning church Great singing those of you who are watching online. We're so grateful that you're connecting with us that way this morning We want to invite you to come in person if you're able and those of you who are in the overflow room there in the parlor. Thank you for serving the church by being willing to go in on a rotational basis just to free up some seating in here Uh, I've already met several visitors today, so your sitting in that other area allows more space for visitors to sit in here, so thank you for being willing to do that. Good morning, church. Please turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel in chapter five, if you will, 1 Samuel in chapter five. In 1973, the late theologian J.I. Packer wrote his most famous work, a book called Knowing God. Many of you have this book, have read this book, it's, it's a popular book. It sold over one million copies in North America alone. Chances are, if your parents or your grandparents had any kind of collection of Christian books in their home, they had a copy of Knowing God. So popular was the book that Christianity Today ranks it in the top 50 works of all time that have shaped evangelicalism. It's been translated in over 10 different languages and published at seven different editions. Knowing God is a book about knowing God. Right, it's about understanding his attributes and understanding his character, It's about knowing God through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, with the God man. And I want to suggest to you this morning that if we as a church are going to be people who are following the true king, then we have to know our God. We have to know who he is so that we might worship him rightly, that we might submit to him in For all that he is and all that he is worth because he is the one true and living God. Friends, if we know not God, then we have no hope in life. Now this morning, as we continue our series in 1 Samuel, we're going to set our hearts to know God. We're going to set our hearts to behold our God. And as we look at this travel log of the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, we'll behold our God as the supreme ruler, as the glorious judge, as the self-sufficient Lord, and as the holy God. Would you stand with me? We're going to begin by reading the first 12 verses of 1 Samuel in chapter 5. 1 Samuel chapter 5, 1 through 12. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of God of Israel there, but after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron, But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought around to us the ark of God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your word. Your word tells us who you are. Your word enables us to behold you. And today, we confess that you are a supreme, the supreme God, the only true and living God. Lord, today, we pray that you would give us a greater vision for who you are and how we are to live in light of that. Give us grace and give us comfort. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, last week, we left off, and the Philistines had defeated the Israelites in battle, and they had captured the Ark of God. Now, this was a double blow for the Israelites. Right? Number one, they had lost in battle, but number two, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, which symbolized His presence, which symbolized His glory, had been captured. It had been stolen. Eli and his two sons were now dead. Hophni and Phineas died in battle, and Eli, at the sound or the, at the sound of the hearing of The ark of God being captured fell over and he died in his old age. And chapters five and six continue this ark narrative after what happened in the battle previous that we read about in chapter four. So, as we look to the text, first I want us to behold the supreme God. Behold the supreme God. After the battle at Ebenezer, the Ark of God is brought to Ashdod, one of the five major cities that belonged to the Philistines. We talked about this in past weeks. They had five major cities, which were like city-states, and they had elders that ruled those states, but they were a combined group that lived on the western shore there of the Mediterranean. Now, after capturing the Ark they rejoiced, this was a major feat. This was a big victory for the Philistines. They were so proud and they wanted to display their victory. They wanted to showcase their victory, so they brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord into the house of Dagon. Now Dagon was the highest god in the pantheon of gods of the Philistines. So they brought the Ark of the Covenant into the house or like the temple of Dagon and they set up the Ark there before Dagon. As a prize They set it up as a display of their power A display of their majesty They would have thought Hey, you know what? Dagon, he was more powerful than Yahweh He was more powerful than the God of Israel That's why we were able to defeat them And here is the victory I'm thinking of uh, different accounts I've heard over the years You've heard them too like where rival schools, rival high schools or rival colleges will go and they'll send people and they'll go steal the mascot of the other college or other school and they'll bring it back and, and they'll display it like they've done something wonderful, something big. In a sense, that's what's going on here, except people die, okay? So that's what's taking place here and they're, they're gloating in their victory, And while the plan was to showcase their victory by placing the ark of God there next to their idol, Dagon, what happened next they never would have imagined. Rather than rejoicing in this symbol of victory, the people woke up to their God laying prostrate before the ark of the Lord. It's as if Dagon was bowing before the symbol of the ark of Israel. At the end of verse 3, What stands out to me is comical. Not sure what they thought happened to Dagon, their idol. How it fell before the ark of the Lord. But note that they had to pick up their God and put him back on the shelf because their God could not pick himself up. And then the next morning they found something very similar. Only this time it was even worse. This time the head and the hands of their God, Dagon, Dagon had been severed. If on morning one, Dagon took the posture of a prostrate worshiper, scholar Dwayne Garrett suggests that on morning two, Dagon was like an executed prisoner before the ark of God. And the message, friends, is undeniable. The message is undeniable. The God of Israel is the supreme God. There is no one higher than him. He is the most high God. He reigns in power. When the Philistines, they may have thought that their God was superior, the one true and living God was showing otherwise. In a sense, the one true and living God was displaying his power, showcasing his power as the idol Dagon would fall before him. And when we take a step back, friends, we have to look at the greater context. We need to see that even when things don't look good, God is still in control and we need to interpret our life circumstances in the same way even when things don't look good our God is still supreme our God is still in control this is true on a personal level and it's true on a grand level as well let's think back through Israel's history why did Israel lose the battle here to the Philistines as we read last week in chapter 4 Not because God is not powerful, not because God is not supreme, but because God was working his will, removing the corrupt leadership from Israel. Fast forward hundreds of years. Why did the people of God go into exile at the hands of the Assyrians and the Babylonians? Not because God was overpowered, but because God was working his will. He was working his plan and he was punishing his people for their rebellion against him. Fast forward many, many more years. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Not because Satan got the better of God, not because Satan was more powerful than God or he got the upper hand and won the victory, but because God was working his plan. God was working his will, redeeming sinners through the cross of Christ. And friends, the same is true in our lives, The same is true in our lives. Though things may seem bleak, let's not forget that God's ways are always perfect. Let's not forget that God is always working behind the scenes in ways that we don't see, in ways that we don't understand, and he's working for his glory, and he's working for our good. Now, friends, sometimes this is hard to believe. Sometimes it's a battle to believe this. Sometimes, because situations in our lives are so difficult, we have to continually remember that our God is good and that our God is in control, and we have to remind ourselves of this, and we have to remind ourselves of God's love. We have to remind ourselves that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, he is the one who loves us today and will give us all things in Christ We have to remind ourselves, even though things don't look good, and friends, even though things may not always have a good ending or the ending that we would prefer, God is still working for his glory and working for our good. And it's a battle to remember that. So let's do it. When those thoughts come in that say, hey, what's going on here? God doesn't really love you or God really isn't good or God really isn't powerful, let's believe God's word. Let's remember what he says. Because everyone in this room has some circumstance in their life when it's not easy, where you don't understand. And what we need to do in moments like that is remind ourselves of truth. And God's word is truth. So let's bathe ourselves in that and let's draw near to the Lord because he cares and because he is good. Whoever or whatever the idol or the situation, our God is greater. Our God is stronger, our God is higher than any other. That's what the Philistines were learning when they saw their god Dagon lying prostrate, prostrate, excuse me, and broken before the one true and living God. But that was just the beginning. We also see that our God is the righteous judge. He's the glorious judge. Behold the glorious judge. God shows himself supreme, and verse 6 tells us that the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod and the surrounding territory. Now, interestingly enough, the, the Hebrew word for glory means heavy, right? So the Hebrew word translated glory means heavy. There is a heaviness. God is is. Is is full of glory. God is heavy. His presence is heavy. In in a good sense, but also we see here, his heaviness was upon his enemies, his heaviness was upon the Philistines. Now we ended chapter four with the question of where is the glory? Right? Where's the heaviness? Well the ark had been captured and the glory had departed. Verse 6 tells us the hand of the Lord was heavy on these Philistines. Here we see that God is a glorious judge. He's a glorious judge. First in Ashdod, and then in Gath, and then in Ekron. Look, things weren't going well for the Philistines. Yeah, they had captured the ark, but they had captured the ark to their own demise, This wasn't a good thing. They thought it would be wonderful. Look at this victory we have. And what happened was everything turned out for the worst. That God terrified and afflicted them with tumors is taken to mean that a great plague came upon these followers of Dagon. These people. These rejecters of the one true and living God. Tumors translates as swelling or bumps. Now look, there's all sorts of commentary what this could mean. Some people want to, tra- want to say that this was bubonic plague, right? Because there's mention of mice and perhaps the mice then would have spread some sort of bubonic plague and they had all these swellings. Some people say this was actually uh, a situation that affected their, uh, their private areas, okay? So there's a lot of different speculation on what was happening here. But what we know is that this was a plague that God brought on these people as a judgment against them. This was... God judging them for their idolatry, for their sinfulness, for their failing to honor him as the one true living God, and for their going against his people. When we read this account, friends, if it wasn't so serious, it would be humorous. The leaders of the Philistines don't know what to do, so they just kept passing the ark along to the next Philistine town. I mean, I'm reminded of that phrase, that phrase with friends like these, who needs enemies, right? Like, This is crazy, like they're just, oh, we don't want it, send it to our our brothers and sisters over here. And it doesn't go well, but it's full on survival mode. Everyone for themselves. What else is there to do when the hand of the Lord is heavy against you, when the hand of the Lord is pressing down upon you? And the question is, why was the hand of the Lord pressing down on the Philistines? And again, the answer is that this is God's judgment on these idol worshipers. Now, I want us to reflect back a little bit uh, to the book of Judges. We've worked, these books are connected. We've talked about Judges each week. But you recall that when uh, when Joshua led the Israelites into the promised land, he gave them a command, and that was to... Uh, conquer the land right to to move out all the pagan peoples to to complete the conquest but we know that from the beginning of the book of judges that the israelites did not fulfill what god called them to do they left some of the the canaanites they left some of their living in the land and god said that they would become a thorn in their flesh they would test the people and so so We've talked about the time of the judges, how the people would live all right and then they would fall away and then the enemies, God would send the enemies, the people they failed to remove from the land would come and they would be a thorn in their flesh and they would oppress them and then God would raise up a deliverer. This happened over and over and the Philistines were one of these peoples that the Israelites failed to remove from the land. This was a big deal and this is what is going on here. The Philistines were among the chief Snares to God's people. They did not fear God. And while God uses such people to discipline his own people, God's judgment was also on the pagan peoples because of their rebellion, because of their sinful pursuits. Why the pestilence and the plagues in the Philistines? Because their hearts were set against the one true and living God. They thought they could control God, they thought they could overpower God. In their arrogance, they set their hearts against the one true and living God. They rebelled. They lived according to their own desires. They lived according to their own uh, purposes. They lived for their own glory. Friends, in a very real way, the glorious judge was judging the Philistines for their sinful rebellion. That's why the tumors, that's why the plagues. Later on, we're going to read in chapter 6 that there was mice that were just devastating their fields as well. And we need to take this to heart. I'm reminded of Paul's church, Paul's letter to the church at Galatia. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh, will reap corruption. Those who are apart from a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ are today under God's judgment. And while life may seem just fine right now, don't be deceived. In the end, friends, those who are in rebellion against God will experience God's wrath forever. But remember, Paul's writing here to the church. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. How will we live before him? How will we submit to the supreme God? How will we follow him? Perhaps, though, like the Philistines, life is difficult. Life is really tough right now. Friend, God is seeking to get our attention. God is seeking to get our attention. Judgments in this life ought to awaken us up to our own spiritual brokenness. Discipline of God in this life ought to cause us to repent and to draw near to him, to call out to him. And for those who are not in Christ, who have not placed their hope and their trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, He is a glorious judge, and right now, in his patience, he is drawing you to himself. Will you hear? Will you respond? Will you follow? Will you listen? Will you repent? Will you humble yourself and put your life in his hands? Trust in Christ, the one who paid the sin debt on the cross and then rose again on the third day. Well next, this text points us to God's self-sufficiency. We're gonna behold the self-sufficient Lord. We behold the self-sufficient Lord. So Dagon is presented as a helpless idol, right? Which is exactly what the psalmist tells us that all man-made gods are. He has to be picked up and put back on the shelf in his own house because he has no power to do it himself. Psalm 135, verses 15 through 18, the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them them now i want us to flip to chapter six and let's read the first nine verses here and i just want to see how god is working behind the scenes to accomplish his purpose of returning the ark to his people chapter six we'll read the first nine verses the ark of the lord was in the country of the philistines seven months and the philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said what shall we do with the ark of the lord Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. They said, if you send away the ark of God of Israel, ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means, return to him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we should return to him? They answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you, and on your lords, so you must have, make images of your tumors and images of the mice that ravage the land, and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps He will lighten His hand from off of you and your gods in your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After He dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take. And prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke. And yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put in a box at its side the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It just happened by coincidence. So friends, I'm reminded here of psalm chapter 73 verse 28 which states the nearness of god is our good okay that's true for those who take refuge in him who are rightly connected to him but for those who are in rebellion against god his nearness is not good it doesn't feel good in fact it is judgment see the philistines understand now that they don't want god's presence among them they don't understand that they need god's presence but they certainly don't see God's presence as a good thing here. They wanna move God's presence away, they can't handle it, so they inquire then how they are to rid themselves of God's presence. So they get their diviners and their priests and they come up with a plan to return the ark of the covenant of the Lord to Israel. And to some degree then they understand that they have likely sinned against the Lord so they include this guilt offering, these five golden tumors. There's a lot of speculation about what this is, what the tumors look like, all that kind of a thing. And these five golden mice which accord to the five lords of the Philistines and they want to send it back to the people. They devise this clever plan to make sure that it was the Lord who brought these judgments on them. So this whole idea of taking these milk cows, so let me just explain what this means here. They, they, they say, get these two milk cows, right? These, cow, these cows, these mama cows that are nursing young, even currently. And they say, get those cows, put a, put a yoke on them, attach a cart, and send it on this road back to Beth Shemesh back to uh, area of Israel but take those nursing calves and bring them back to this other place to their home now if those milk if those mama cows are going to go ahead and head back to Israel and not get back knowing that they're full and bloated and they need those young calves to eat from them then it's the lord because that wouldn't happen in normal life. It, wouldn't, it just wouldn't take place. The cows would turn back and they would go find their young. But if those cows head all the way back to Beth Shemesh, then we know that it is the Lord whose hand has been against us. If they, if they turn back and it's just like normal, well, then it was just a coincidence that all this happened. But the most important thing to see here is that at some level, these diviners and these priests, they understood there was some guilt against the one true living God. So they said, we gotta send a guilt offering back to the Lord. It has to go this way. Now, friends, read between the lines and you can see that God is in these details, God doesn't need anyone to come and to rescue him. He doesn't need the Israelites to go recover the ark. In his sovereignty, God arranges all the details so that the ark is returned. By his hand, he leads those cows back to the land of Israel. They don't have to have a rescue mission. There doesn't have to be a war for this. God is not having to have someone come lift him off the ground and put him on the shelf. God is in control of this entire situation. He is self-sufficient. He doesn't need anyone. He doesn't need any of us. But he chooses to love us and he chooses to place his grace and his mercy upon us and he chooses to entrust us with the gospel to preach and to spread his word. But friends, if we didn't, you recall when Jesus is entering into, the, into Jerusalem, if the people weren't praising him, he would say that he, even these rocks would cry out. God doesn't need any of us. But in his grace, he calls us to himself. He is self-sufficient. And it's important that we remember this. It's important that we remember and that we believe that God isn't dependent on us. Yes, God has chosen to utilize us to proclaim Christ and to serve others, but he doesn't have to. He could accomplish it any way he wanted to do it. He's not dependent on human hands. He doesn't need us, but he loves us anyway. He's chosen to give affection to us. In fact, our God died and rose again. Jesus died and rose again according to his own power and his own plan. He didn't need a doctor to come revive him. He didn't need someone to come roll the stone away. While he is self-sufficient, he doesn't need anyone or anything. He freely chooses to humble himself and to make himself known and to enter a relationship with his creation. This is our God. And truly, friends, his nearness is our good his nearness is our good for those who are rightly connected to him because of his great mercy and his great grace we serve him finally this morning this text calls us to behold the holy one i want us to read in verses 13 6 13, through the beginning of chapter 7 now the people of Bethshemus were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. So what that means is that the milk cows went straight to the, the area of Israel, right? So God is in this, God is behind this, and now it's back into the land. So these people in Bethshemus, they're rejoicing to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Bashishmish and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and they offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them up upon the great stone. And the men of Bashishmish offered burnt offerings and sacrifice sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the philistines returned as a guilt offering to the lord one for ashdod one for gaza one for ashkelon one for gath and one for ekron and the golden mice according to the number of all the cities of the philistines belonging to the five lords both fortified cities and unwalled villages the great stone beside which they set down the ark is a witness to this day in the field of joshua Bethshemesh. and he struck some of the men of Beth because they looked upon the ark of the Lord, he struck 70 men of them and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with great blow. When the men of Beth said, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, and to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord, come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Now, friends, I'm not going to lie. I wish the story stopped at verse 18. I wish the story stopped at verse 18. The, the cart, the ark is now back into uh, the land of Israel and everyone's rejoicing and everyone's happy and everything's good. Beth was a Levitical city according to Joshua chapter 26. So it went to Beth and there's already a lot of Levites, a lot of priestly people there. But then things take a turn for the worse. Why? Well, some would say that the Levites should have known better. Rather than sacrificing the milk cows, according to the law, they should have been sacrificing bulls. And rather than, cover, rather than covering the ark as they should have in Numbers chapter 4, they put it on display on, the top, on this large stone that we read about in this text. And while we don't fully understand the offense in verse 10, they put it on display and God judged his people for their looking into the ark. Their peering at the ark why well because they failed to regard god as holy i'm reminded of the the, the moment when israel is there camped out at the base of mount sinai and god is going to come and he's good, his presence is going to be over and he warns moses he says keep everyone back against the mountain don't let them come and touch the mountain because if they touch the mountain they will die because my presence is here and i am a holy god so keep everyone back and in the same sense here, the people in some ways show contempt for God's instruction and they peer, they look into and they display the ark of God. Look, they're rejoicing, it's, they're glad they're here and they may not have meant anything negative by it but they approached God in, in a way that showed him disrespect and God judged them. 70 people died that day because of their... Not holding God in the highest esteem. Look, we can't be casual when it comes to our God. He's holy. He's set apart. He demands to be feared. This is our God. He is holy and he is good, but he is not one to trifle with. And their response? Well, who is able to stand before this Lord? Who's able to stand before the Lord? This holy God. They too now, the people of Israel, the, the Levites there, they want to rid themselves of the presence of God, right? So they send messengers to Kiriath-Jerim and not sure how much information they actually shared with those people, but they said, hey, come get this ark. And we know they did and it remained there for some 20 years until David will actually bring it home, back into Jerusalem, or back, he bring it to Jerusalem. Well, let's go back to that question. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And the answer, no one. Not a person. No one can stand before God, not in their own merit, not in their own righteousness. Only those who cry out to God for mercy, only those who cry out to God for grace, only those who humble themselves and put their hope in Jesus Christ. The righteous one, the perfect one, the one who listened to the Father in everything, who accomplished the will of God in everything, who lived without sin, not in no sin, nothing, nothing in his attitude, nothing in his words, nothing in his thoughts, nothing in his actions. Only those who are connected to him. Psalm 130 reads: Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let my ears be attended to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O oh Lord, should mark iniquities, O oh Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. Those who are devoted to King Jesus understand his holiness. They understand his supremacy. They understand his self-sufficiency. They understand that he is the glorious judge. And in light of that, those whose hearts are devoted to King Jesus understand how far they fall from what God desires and expects of who he is. So they cry out for mercy. They put their hope in him to be made right. They depend not on their own righteousness, but on the grace that is found in Jesus And they regard his holiness. They regard his holiness. And they seek to listen. And they seek to love as he calls us to. Friends, let's be a church whose hearts are devoted to King Jesus. Let's live for God's glory. Let's know who he is. And let that knowledge and our love for him and our appreciation for the gospel direct our lives in everything. And how we live. And what we say, and what we do, and what we expose ourselves to, and how we love. Let's be people whose hearts are devoted to King Jesus because he is always right and always true. Church, let's behold our God. Let's know him, and let's follow him with our whole beings, for he's worthy. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, Again, we give you thanks because you are a God who is worthy to be feared and worthy to be praised. And in the moments of life that don't seem to make sense to us and frankly aren't even very appealing to us, help us to remain connected to you, loving you, serving you, fearing you, and worshiping you because you're worthy of that. You are the holy God. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, you may have questions about the gospel. You may desire to be baptized. You may wonder about church membership. You may want someone to pray with you. We would love to connect with you. Would you stand? Would you sing? And if God leads, would you come and meet with us up here?